And I would say it was about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit over that now, where I got exposed to psychedelics. Uh And to say they blew my mind Uh is probably very accurate in that it really allowed me to see so much more. Now, I'm already very acquainted with the unconscious Mm -hmm. and fantasies, Mm -hmm. but this was all different access to fields within the self. And I immediately, intuitively could recognize the healing potential. Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hegney. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the re-emergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture, but the future is far from certain. My goal with The Trip Report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. Welcome back to the Trip Report podcast, a production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. Today, we're joined by Dr. Gita Vide, an NYU-trained psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and founder of the Center for Natural Intelligence in New York City. Gita has been working with the likes of Richard Schwartz, Philip Wolfson, and Deepak Chopra over the last several years to train healthcare providers on psychedelic-assisted therapies and to develop novel psychotherapeutic protocols. Gita's innovation project at the Center for Natural Intelligence is a think tank and incubator that aims to develop novel psychotherapeutic modalities suited for working with psychedelics in altered states. One such approach she is developing with Dr. Vestal Bannerkol, the author of The Body Keeps the Score the canonical book that really kick-started the movement for trauma-informed, somatically-based approaches that are gaining traction in the treatment of trauma and other conditions. This conversation came at the perfect time, as my work with the Trip Report and Beckley Waves is focused on the development of suitable and tailored wraparound support for psychedelic-assisted therapies. As psychedelic-assisted healing continues to gain traction across the culture, and as we inch closer to FDA-approved psychedelic substances, The need for innovative, effective, and tailored approaches to support and therapy is a top priority for the field, and Gita's work is a great example of innovation in this area. In this episode, we discuss Freud's interest in non-ordinary states of consciousness, the similarities and differences between hypnosis and psychedelic experiences, the importance of the body and the feelings in the body for emotional regulation, the therapeutic utility of ego dissolution, and of course, what the future of psychotherapy looks like. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Dr. Gita Vide. What I think is interesting about your work is you're coming from a medical specialty that in the time and era that we're living in, the term silo is a common phrase in in healthcare and medicine. And we have a system whereby if there is a subjective or if there's symptoms that are related to subjective experience of behavior or perception, it's deemed a a mental health or a psychiatric patient. Whereas if someone is experiencing metabolic disease or cancer or a broken, so it's a fractured and it's a siloed sort of system. 
And what I see with your work and, and others is, how would you describe it? A, a coalescing or a sort of a breaking down of, of walls, you might say. At least that's my perception of it. And so anyway, let's start with your background and training, because I know that you're a, a trained psychiatrist. And Yeah, I have a pretty varied background. I, I did train as a psychiatrist at NYU, so I have done, you know, after medical school, the psychiatric training. Mm -hmm. And initially when I went into psychiatry, I was always interested in schizophrenia and research. So mm -hmm. I then did a research fellowship as well as a fellowship in electrophysiology and psychopharmacology. So I was very biologically based. Yeah. And then I did a 180 and became a psychoanalyst. And that's simply because our system, as you alluded to, is very much about recognizing symptom constellations mm -hmm. and then treating them like a diagnosis mm -hmm. as if it was diabetes or something. Yeah. And that was the model really in the 90s when I was practicing and, mm -hmm. and training where Prozac and all these drugs offered promise that we can now fix these conditions. Right. And as I mentioned, I was interested in schizophrenia, not because I was interested in diagnosing and treating it, but also because I was just so fascinated by the mind and the yeah. subjective experience. And I trained at Bellevue Hospital and four people would come in delusional and each one had a different experience mm. and their mind and the subjective experience. Mm. And there was a whole system within their worlds that I yeah. wanted to enter into. So that was why ultimately that whole just recognizing symptoms and trying to dull the symptoms didn't work for me. So yeah. being a psychoanalyst is really much more about getting to some underpinnings, mm -hmm. trying to understand the person's experience. How can a relationship impact another person's experience and yeah. perhaps make changes? So that's what I was doing for a long time. I've been in practice for over 35 years, being a psychiatrist, but much more of a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. And I would say it was about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit over that now, where I got exposed to psychedelics. Uh -huh. And to say they blew my mind uh -huh. is probably very accurate in that it really allowed me to see so much more. Now, I'm already very acquainted with the unconscious mm -hmm. and fantasies, mm -hmm. but this was whole different access to fields within the self. Mm -hmm. And I immediately, intuitively could recognize the healing potential. So then I got very involved in seeking out the underground to learn more, mm -hmm. the researchers, yeah. and seeing what was out there and how could I get involved and how could I learn more and educate myself. So I became a MAPS-trained psychotherapist and got involved with the MAPS MDMA psychotherapy study. Mm -hmm. But more than that, I got involved with how can I use these medicines mm -hmm. in my practice mm -hmm. to harness healing real paradigm shift yeah. because it was not so much about how do we dull symptoms or treat symptoms. It was really opening up a possibility of even more than a psychoanalyst can do in a deep process. Yeah. It was opening up true transformation, real healing, yeah. real blossoming and flourishing into oneself. Interesting. I mean, this sounds like a very kind of basic or simple, obvious question. I'm almost reluctant to ask it. Could you just kind of describe what psychoanalysis is from your perspective? Absolutely. I have a very, like, I think, cartoonish image of- What is your image? I'm lying curious. Lying on the couch, not looking at somebody, and just talking about the narrative or the story. And, and it's a narrative-based modality. And I, I guess I don't, have, I, I don't have anything beyond that. Like I- Let's, let's 
Some of it, one of what you describe as accurate. I would say Freud was the person who right. came up with the whole method. Yeah. And of course, I should have said, yeah, Freud. And, yes. Yeah. And he did develop it. And actually, it's very interesting because he had an interest in non-ordinary states. Its, it's real oh, really? roots were in hypnosis. Interesting. So there was a lot of movement going on where the value of hypnosis and uh -huh. dropping into an altered state and having a catharsis yeah. of experience was seen as being really getting to the core of a lot of mental disorders mm -hmm. like hysteria. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, Freud, I think, had a lot of respect and got very engaged and interested in that as a treatment for psychiatric or neurological conditions, but ultimately found it was almost violent because you were not respecting the significance of the symptoms mm -hmm. to actually have some big core release, which was almost an abreaction yeah. to get to the core of what was behind it through a hypnotic state. He felt maybe that was, to some extent, not respecting the symptoms were there for a purpose. So he modified and developed this other methodology, which is psychoanalysis, yeah. which is very much as you described, using these different conditions, really, to try and facilitate a trance experience where you lie on the couch mm -hmm. so you can be inward directed, mm -hmm. not distracted mm -hmm. by the outer world so much. So a little bit in repose mm -hmm. and frequent meetings with someone to really get into a familiar state. And what he realized is a whole drama plays out where your early relationships start to get projected onto the psychoanalyst. Interesting. And it's this very alive drama in the present moment. So instead of just recognizing intellectually, right, right. these are the patterns of the past and now you're acting that way oh. with your friends, you suddenly start seeing it come to life in the room. And in the, the dynamic In the dynamic the with the therapist. And, and it makes no sense, but suddenly you're feeling, you're just like my mother. <laughs> Except for, it's not actually what the difference is. It's not, I feel as if you're just like my mother. Suddenly in that moment, the conditions are such that one experiences, I think you are my mother. And so it's very alive. It's yeah. very theatrical. It's very much dropping into a non-ordinary state. And the only directive is just say whatever comes into your mind. And of course, what happens is, you notice all the obstacles towards being free that get yeah. in the way. Oh, wow. But really, it's through this unfolding, deep process, which is regressive and played out, that some of those dynamics come to the surface. So it is very much on the couch. It's a very intimate experience. Yeah. It's usually, when I did it, it was five days a week, yeah. four yeah. or five days a week. So there's something about the repetition yeah. in this little kind of sort of very safe environment that really facilitates an unfolding process. Right. But it is all about trying to enter into an altered state and use the relationship and the knowledge that comes through experientially. So even though there's talk yeah. and there is a lot of understanding or interpretation, Freud really emphasized the drama that plays out, mm. transference, counter-transference. Mm. Mm -hmm. And he actually did talk about it being a cure of love, mm. which is... Also very interesting. That is interesting. So a lot of the features of what we think about nowadays in psychedelic psychotherapy, I think actually have a lot of relevance because we are talking about non-ordinary states. Right, right. Getting more into a deep relationship with yourself. Yeah. Reclaiming aspects of ourselves that have been warded off from the past or yeah. feeling states. And then the relationship between another person and how that can impact you and vice versa. Interesting. I want to go back to something you said that was it that Freud left the practice of hypnosis to the side and sort of went a different direction? So, th so the practice of hypnosis was 
he would he would have known about it and would have Absolutely. practiced it. And maybe say a little bit about what hypnosis is and maybe the difference between that and the drama of psychoanalysis. Well, I think what's really different is trying to have someone drop into an alter stage using mm -hmm. suggestion mm -hmm. and to really invite someone to perhaps have a release of experience. Mm -hmm. of, you know, mm -hmm. In some ways, there might be an interesting analogy to some of the, I, I guess I would say there might be some kind of correspondence perhaps with equivalency with how nowadays there's such an emphasis on ego dissolution, high right, doses, right, right. big release, big yeah, experiences, yeah. which oftentimes can subjectively feel really profound. Right. So in hypnosis, maybe it's not quite the same thing, but you can have a big release of feelings that perhaps have been suppressed yeah. or repressed or an outburst. And they can be something really powerful about right, those right. experience and feeling states. But actually to change one's structure, to really have a true transformation that is enduring over time, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's quite difficult because he came up with this whole concept of compromise formation. Any symptom we have, even if it's troubling, mm -hmm. seems as if, well, no one would really want to have these symptoms, but in fact, maybe they are providing a solution. We just don't know what are they solving and what is the underpinning of that solution. Interesting. So, for example, someone who struggles with obsessive symptoms, which might be really bothersome to mm -hmm, them, mm -hmm. might actually secretly be a way of them regulating and managing feeling states, which would be harder yeah. to deal with. Yeah. But then they shift to the mind and yeah. thinking and thought and the repetitive ideas. Yeah. Or he had this incredible, important case about the rat man, of where actually perhaps anxiety and anxious feelings can, phobias, they can be shifted onto, I'm not worried in a generalized way about the world or about my own impulses, and they could perhaps be externalized and put onto maybe a creature if mm -hmm. I just stay away from that fearful creature. So it's a way of trying to manage feeling states within ourselves or perhaps uh, contain feelings, all sorts of underpinnings. So we don't really know what does the symptom represent? Yeah. What is it providing? You're using the term feeling states a few times here. Yes. And I'm wondering if we could dive into that because one of the, I'm going to call it a trend, but it's a, it's a, I, I think it's an understanding of the, what's called the somatic or the bodily felt sense or the state of maybe the term pre-verbal or non-verbal is also useful, but just the feeling of being in the body as like an area that from my perspective as a lay person seems to be gaining more credence or validity or importance in therapeutic paradigms these days, you might say. Yes. I, I don't know. Is is that does that connect? Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that, you know, this gets into the mind and body and how do mm -hmm. we even inhabit our bodies and yeah. how do we actually get better located within our bodies and learn how to regulate mm -hmm, our feelings. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at any baby that comes into the world, all of us, they're utterly helpless and unable to do absolutely anything yeah. for themselves. And usually if they're not screaming and crying in a dysregulated state, mm -hmm. we have to be really worried about the baby because the nervous system is immature. Yeah. And it's really quite remarkable that through early life, these potentials to really open up into a system where a baby can over time learn how to contain their feelings, mm -hmm. regulate their mm -hmm. feelings, mm -hmm. and be able to be habituated within their body. Freud came up with this really beautiful line, the ego is first and foremost a body ego. 
Interesting. And that's really the core of his real thinking is that as we go through these developmental stages, mm -hmm. the oral stage, the anal stage, where there's a kind of cathexis or a real kind of focus. You see babies, they're putting everything in their mouth. Right, the right. world revolves around sucking yeah. and nursing yeah. and then exploring the world through the mouth. And then it shifts when they suddenly develop bowel and bladder oh, regulation. Yeah, yeah. And so he talks about really how as we unfold into our physiological capacities, the world gets organized around those ways, not just physically, but also mentally and psychically. Mm -hmm. And so that's another unfolding of how we see the world and how we experience ourselves, mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. as the world around us. And that starts forming these experiences of ourselves. But you talk about something really interesting about anyone who's had a baby, they know that this individual that's in the world has a personality and character very unto themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, they can't talk to you, but you certainly see their yeah. um, personalities right, right. from the youngest of age. And certainly even by four months, it's completely wild yeah, yeah. in really just a few weeks, how into focus that comes. Mm -hmm. And really, it's quite remarkable. And there is so much going on mm -hmm. in the mind of a newborn infant that tracks that are being laid down yeah. and gaze and taking in the world. And that whole cradle of perception is what Rene Spritz calls it. That, that all is this whole rich matrix that starts shaping the outer world as well as the inner world. Mm -hmm. So it's a very rich area. And I'm glad you bring this up because I do think some of these ideas, which, which I think now become so much more relevant in psychedelic work, I think open up this concept of set and setting, which yeah. I don't think is fully appreciated all the potential mm -hmm. of opening up some of these windows to have our environments and our culture revisited yeah. for new inputs really yeah, yeah. into experience. You were describing the development of both the sense of self, but also the perception of the outer world yes. or, or non-self. And that feels like, and this is in the, the early stages of life, that I, I imagine that this is this capacity or this vantage point is developing. And one of the interesting things with the psychedelic experience is it, it has a tendency, it can, to break down that barrier between self and non-self. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, is that an opportunity to reshape or remold or to understand like what's the utility of that in a therapeutic context i think all of the above i think there's so much value in just that i think to actually well i'll say a few things i work with ketamine predominantly in my day-to-day -day practice mm -hmm. and i do think there is something remarkable for someone to actually drop in when doses are tailored mm -hmm. to actually have an experience of themselves beyond the everyday systems we live within. Normally mm -hmm. on an everyday basis, we are so restrained within our thinking and thought or the experience of our body mm -hmm. or our feelings that that tends to be the driver of our life. Our mind's telling us what to do or I'm feeling anxious, so I want to get away from that feeling. Right. Or yeah. I'm hungry, I better get something to eat. Yeah. That's pretty much this little t narrow kind of windows we live within. 
And to actually be able to drop into the experience beyond the chatter of our mind, if that goes offline and there's more space to to dip into what's beneath the surface mm-hmm. or to travel within the experience of imagery which have meaning or significance or music, all of the senses really mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that are this huge symphony yeah. within which we live in. So you actually have a chance to drop in to expand to see almost the symphony that we think of as us. And that is almost like a distillation out where you can start seeing the mind stream, the feeling stream. And so that's really powerful. But to your point, when you get to the margins of self, you can actually have an experience of awareness beyond all of that. And so experientially to sort of feel, wow, I have a sense of awareness or unity, that can be really powerful. But also to see there's a kind of a consciousness even beyond what we typically are within. And then to start coming back together and experientially see how you are composed and put together is powerful. And I think a really important piece is how much of our identities are composed by narratives and stories we have about ourselves and what happened to us in the past. And in a way to have a sense beyond all of that allows us to have a new perspective on how we think about ourselves and perhaps even an opportunity to reclaim ourselves Mm -hmm. and rewrite our own stories because we typically don't have a break in that, in that experience. experience right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I feel like there's a good opportunity to go to the next part of your professional development or career and going into psychoanalysis and, and training there and using that in your practice. But you've used the term awareness and unitive states. And, and, I, and I feel like that it may be a next chapter in your training or your evolution. And I'm curious what came next in your professional development or your, yes. your interests in in well, this I feel area. like when I did get involved with psychedelic medicines, I was really blown away. Actually, from the first experience I had, it almost felt like these veils were kind of pulled back. And I've never had such a profound experience since, although I've had bits and pieces of them where I was able to see myself, see really my own self-work from psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, how much that had helped me, how much I knew about myself, how it was the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And there was so much more beyond that. And I was in a group context. I was able to look at everyone in the room and almost see like a psychological MRI of everyone around me and almost the group in a bird's eye view, like in a hive mind, as well as different levels of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think I was vibrating for about a month. I think the idea of Kundalini awakening would have been a very handy thing to have available at Mm -hmm. the time. And it was not business as usual. And it was really helpful for me having been raised, um, actually I was raised in England, but my heritage is Indian. Mm -hmm. And so almost by osmosis, I was always picked up a lot about Hinduism, being dragged to Hindu temples or Hare Krishna temples in London, because at that point they didn't really have too many Hindu temples. And going to India, I had a lot of knowledge from my past upbringing At the time, I was very much a scientist, but to have those maps was really helpful and really allowed me to really get back into some of those philosophies that I had been exposed to and learn much more. And I actually got really interested in consciousness. I'd already been a meditator, but I got really deep into meditation practice, yoga philosophy. And I met Deepak Chopra, who's a really dear friend and colleague, and we started working together. I'm part of the Chopra Foundation. And He's a big expert in mind-body medicine as well as consciousness and is a big supporter of psychedelic psychotherapy for healing and 
consciousness expansion. And so we really started getting involved working together. And I'm really excited about bridging the gap between meditation and yeah. also knowledge from wisdom traditions yeah. with psychedelic experience. Yeah. My read on this state of the, the fields now is in the West and in like the academic settings where meditation is, has been studied, it, it feels like we're kind of at a, an inflection point where the concept of mindfulness took root in the West in maybe the 90s or early 2000s. And it was really much a, a concentration or a, a one-pointedness practice that was being evaluated. And I could, this could just be my confirmation bias, but it seems like there is now so much more interesting research into non-dual states or expansive states of con. There was just a paper published on, I'm going to butcher the term, I think it's Naroda Samapati, or it's basically like a cessation experience. And so the the richness of the traditions of the East or the perennial philosophies feels like it is now acceptable to study in these like rigorous or prestigious institutions and and again this could be my confirmation bias but it it feels like there's a synergy or an auspicious coincidence that psychedelic science is ramping up at the same time that meditation and contemplative practice research feels like it's going into the next level of complexity or interestingness or expansive into not just mindfulness or breath counting or one-pointed awareness. It's, it's the, the full menu, you might say, of the contemplative and spiritual traditions are now on the table in a way that feels like that wasn't the case five years ago or 10 years ago. Does, does that track in your experience? I, I feel that's correct. And I think it's really exciting. And I have the good fortune of doing a lot of teaching ketamine-assisted psychotherapy training at Menla, which is Bob Thurman's mm -hmm. retreat center yeah. with Nena Thurman, his wife, who actually was married to Timothy Leary, her first husband. Oh, wow. And I didn't so know that. Could you just say who, who these people are? Expand a little bit for, for oh, people I'm who may not to. know them. So Bob Thurman is a religious scholar. He taught for many years at Columbia University and is very involved with Tibet House and the Dalai Lama in preserving Tibetan culture. Mm -hmm. And he is an incredible Tibetan Buddhist. And so we have the privilege of having him really participate in our trainings. And I've done some workshops with him where he has guided meditations before psychedelic experience oh, and wow. brought in his knowledge with Deepak Chopra, bringing in Vedanta. So it winds oh, wow. up being a little bit of a... Oh, yeah. and, and of course, the voice of reason, as always, is the more grounded woman who Nena Thurman is no less of a giant, who then really will oftentimes use her own experience of life and psychedelic experience to really illustrate her own experience. I'm going to actually be doing a retreat at Menla with Nena Thurman with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which I'm very delighted about. But I'm talking about all of these people who are just scholars in this area. But I think my favorite actually is when I'm working with an individual who has no grounding mm. in Dharma practice. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. out of the blue, the most profound knowledge and insights come through, not from decades of studying, right. but just from absolutely feels like out of the blue, they suddenly have this download very much along the lines of the perennial philosophy yeah. or how we are all one. Or I feel like sometimes I'm writing notes of what they're accessing because it 
feels like it's straight out of Vedanta. Mm. And they have no idea where this is coming from, whether it's from the collective unconscious or they're tapping into something yeah. one doesn't know. I, or maybe it's in their unconscious or their DNA. But that to me is the most exciting because getting medicines allow us to access so much more than we knew we had within right, us. Right. I don't know if it's channeling. Yeah. But this is not an unusual experience yeah. in my office where I will feel like I'm learning so much from the wisdom of the person I am supporting and sitting with. And it's just remarkable to see how much we can tap into these streams of knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. One of the reasons why I was excited to have you on the podcast is I have now met at least a handful of psychiatrists and physicians that are in other specialties who have trained with you and who credit you with onboarding them to this new paradigm or this new way of working with patients. And I'm wondering if, if we could go into two directions here. One is if you could share a little bit about how your day-to-day -day looks like with, in your clinical practice, but also the trainings and, and how you're working with professionals, medical doctors, DOs, therapists, et cetera, in facilitating their professional evolution, you might say, in, in, into this field. So to whatever degree you're, you're comfortable sharing there. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. I'll start off with the training because I am really enthusiastic about thinking about teaching and training. The mm -hmm. first thing I would say is that I'm part of Phil Wolfson's Ketamine Training Center, mm -hmm. and they're an incredible organization. And we've, it's, I'm really delighted to be part of it because we have an exceptional training. And it's retreat style. It's about five days retreat style. We do one in California, one in New York, the New York is at Menla, so it's mm -hmm. a beautiful setting. And what I really feel proud about is that everyone who participates actually has to experience the medicine mm -hmm. themselves mm -hmm. as well as administer it. So one gets a chance to actually administer a low dose uh, experience to a colleague mm -hmm. as well as administer a higher dose experience oh, and then also have to subjectively experience it and have it facilitated for them. Mm -hmm. And so I do think there's something really profound about the experiential learning. And also because we tend to have groups of about 36 to 40 individuals, by the end of the five days, you have seen so many mm -hmm. different accounts of, of the good, the mm -hmm. bad, the beautiful journeys, mm -hmm. the challenging journeys, mm -hmm. dark journeys, mm -hmm. side effects. You get a really lot of experiential knowledge. And you also have a sense of people blossoming around you. You actually witness the process. Right. So that's the Ketamine Training Center. I'm also very involved with Mind Medicine Australia mm -hmm. and the international course director. So I've been really involved with bringing in, it was a, already a really powerfully strong program. And Australia, as a lot of us know, is the first country to yeah. have psilocybin and MDMA legalized. So there's such enthusiasm from clinicians to learn how to work with these medicines. Mm -hmm. And I brought in a lot of clinicians from the underground, mm -hmm. the overground, indigenous practice, and a lot more female voices mm -hmm. into the program. So I'm very proud of that. And we keep on adding. So that's the other uh, part I'm involved with. I'm also involved in a lot of online trainings. But I do think training is really, it's such a paradigm shift and yeah. such a different way of thinking. Yeah. So I'm really excited to be involved in that conversation. Cool. In terms of my day-to-day -day practice, I do spend a lot of time teaching, but I do like to be in my office a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I do work with individuals 
to do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. I also mm -hmm. do do group work with individuals. Oh, cool. One of the projects I'm the most excited about is my innovation project from the Center for Natural Intelligence, which is an innovation think tank I'm a co-founder of. And in it, we're really trying to think about how do we rethink what psychotherapy is oh, wow. in light of these medicines yeah. and really think about what is healing and having a real stream of leaders and healers in the field to explore with, as well as artists. And I'll mm. give you an example of our first workshop it was wonderful. It was with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who oh, also, wow. and he, and here's how it came about. We teach together and I was asking him about his work with trauma. And of course, I'm a big fan of his book, The Body, sure, Keep the yeah. Score, like, like everyone else, I think it changed my life. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, if you could do anything, what would you do? And he said, psychodrama, it's the most powerful thing. So well, how come I don't even know about psychodrama? <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately what we decided to do, I said, well, let's do it with ketamine. And he said, oh, no, you can't do it with ketamine. And I said, well, let's do it anyway. <laughs> and so we had this beautiful workshop, which we recorded and presented as psychedelic science. It's going to be presented again at ASKP3 and a few other conferences. And we really did psychodrama. And we asked the question of what would happen if we did it after ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? Uh -huh. Or what if we did it with low-dose ketamine right. during the experience? Yeah. Or what if we did it with ending in a high-dose session? And it was very powerful and amplified is the short version. Yeah. And the next one we're going to be thinking about doing something with in conversation to do something with Batsheva, the dance company with Ohad Naharin, oh, cool. the Israeli dance company, uh -huh. who have a whole methodology of movement and healing from the body. Oh, I think I've heard of them before. They have Gaga dance is their method. What is it called? Gaga. Yes. It it looks very strange from the, if you were just to look at it, it but it's very like improv or impromptu kind of movement. I'll tell you what is so wise about them. Their dancers, as you're remarking, move like nobody else. Yeah. And the reason they move like nobody else is, and you'll see the beauty of this, which is why it resonated so much. They move like nobody else because it turns out the body is not different than the mind. We're yeah. constrained by language and narratives yeah. in our bodies. Yeah. So Ohad came up with a whole new lexicon and vocabulary. So his students actually have a word for falling to the ground like a spaghetti. Oh, wow. Because there's a word, they can actually do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely astounding. And he has this whole methodology, and it's so beautiful to actually see how if you change the narrative, you can change movements. Yeah. So we're kind of trying to workshop something together, which That's would be so interesting. really exciting. So I'm really excited about innovation and trying to, instead of just now we can amplify the psychotherapies that we already have with these medicines, what if we actually modify the psychotherapies we have yeah. or rethink what psychotherapy right. is right. and really push the envelope? Because I think so much emphasis has been on, I really think these medicines open up the fields, but we heal ourselves and we heal each other. Yeah. And groups heal each other. That's so interesting you say that because I've long thought about the term innovation in this particular domain, I think is generally used to describe novel psychedelic compounds, right? So like new analogs or new compounds that have different effects. And that is where the overwhelming amount of like invested capital has gone into. It's gone into biotechs that are looking for innovative new drugs. And the other term that that implies is like technologies, right? So the, whether that's brain computer interface or neurofeedback or haptic sensor technology, like 
And what I think is so refreshing, and I've thought about this a lot, is there's actually a lot of innovation. Like we could we could apply that to the conceptual understanding or the didactic understanding or the framework or the modality that we're using to the containers that we're using in which we're using these medicines, right? Like we've already talked about psychoanalysis and now we're kind of going into more somatic or body-based things and non-dual or unitive aware. There is a whole plethora of tools, dance that feels like where there's actually like so much innovation can happen. And that's the thing that I think I would like to be able to spend more time learning about and understanding and cataloging. We have all the drug development companies and they're going to be in clinical trials for years and years to come. And do we even need more and more and more drugs anyway? Yeah. And we have and yet we have this sort of human capacity to imagine with like the knowledge that we have and the lineages that we have new frontiers or frameworks for relational therapies or group therapies or bringing in dance. So I'm, I'm very excited that you're I'm you're really excited about this. about this too. And one thing you sort of said kind of triggered my mind. I think the most remarkable, one of the most remarkable things, it's hard to have one thing that one is remarking on in this work. But I feel like these medicines, and it could be any of them, to be honest with you, any psychedelic medicine, they really open up these windows. And some of the research is coming up about these critical windows that yeah, are opened up. Yeah, or maybe yeah. we could actually have privilege of early childhood, perhaps you can have new inputs right. and new ways of seeing the world. Yeah. But I think it's really a developmental model. What I see is we have the opportunity to grow ourselves. Interesting. And I think that if you look at any baby, they grow themselves, but they can't really grow themselves if they're not in a good enough, how utterly dependent we are on our caregivers to provide social certain and yeah. the social environment and also functions that are provided mm -hmm. soothing mm. or to be seen we only know who we are through the eyes mm -hmm. of another and yeah. how we are being constantly cognizing we're recognizing ourselves and cognizing ourselves through the eyes and reflections of another mm. and so i really think that and in groups and the the role of witness mm -hmm. all of these things have been used in psychotherapy forever, but also in every wisdom tradition, yeah, there yeah. is that whole format. Yeah. And it's not by accident yeah. that we have these formats. And I think that those elements, and they're used differently. Yeah. I mean, in the West, we have a very particular theater we play out in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. But there is really a particular format of engagement that I think all the elements, and that's what I'm really interested in, of how can we use all the elements, the dose of the psychedelic, careful dosing, the relationship, the relationship within themselves, mm -hmm. music, the field itself, mm -hmm. the environment. Mm -hmm. Also, I think even, I think people are not really thinking so much about preparation, almost like we see our world according to how we see our world, but to actually be offered another pair of lenses yeah. with which to try on and see a different view of the world, yeah. even to clarify that's not my world. But then we're so locked into our experience. Yeah, you don't yeah. even have a comparison to know what are the lenses you're using to shape your world. Yeah. Sometimes trying on another pair allows you to at least appreciate what yours is, yeah. if not perhaps adopt a different style or open up new ways of thinking. So along those lines, earlier in the conversation you need to mention with regards to cathartic releases that they don't always hold or they don't always last. If we're thinking about innovation around preparation and the experience and the container and the inputs, 
what are the tools like in the aftermath? Usually the term integration is used. And a lot of times that's like, there's a kind of a prospect of integration circles popping up where people can kind of share. So there's a concept of, of, of sharing your experience and being seen, which I think is part of it. Journaling is a common tool that's used to, to reflect upon it. But I'm wondering if what are some of the other tools available to try to recast the lens or the perception yes. that we see? I'll tell you where I, what, I, what I'm really interested in. These is, I mean, I think that having these big experiences and emotional catharsis can be incredibly valuable. But I think a lot of healing um, in terms of what I've appreciated is how much it is growing ourselves to be able to learn how to contain more of our experiences mm -hmm. and also emotional experiences. Mm -hmm. I think that there is this notion of being able to perhaps, I, I feel in sessions, just to be able to surrender to the experience and be able to ride through emotional states. And of course, this comes up in different wisdom traditions even. And so much of our energy is bound up in suppressing yeah, memories yeah. and feelings. And if we can actually surrender and have those blocks removed, it doesn't even really matter where the feelings come from. But if one can survive or grow themselves to contain feelings mm -hmm. or ride through feelings mm -hmm. or not be so fearful of being destroyed by the feelings that perhaps one would have really felt overwhelmed or possibly not had the capacity yeah. to hold those feeling states as an infant. I think we grow ourselves then to be able to be much more in flow. And that to me is more what I can't think of true healing yeah. or even able, abilities to have intense feelings that are held within the container to your point mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or in a relationship with someone else. Mm -hmm. And this gets harkens back to early caregiving. I think mm -hmm. none of us really got the ideal situation because we all really needed the village. And I mm -hmm. haven't met too many mm -hmm. people who got the village where you mm -hmm. had your mother there full time to manage yeah. your feelings and then the other mother yeah. and then the grandmother yeah. and the grandfather and the whole village. Sure. So I think we all have these regulation deficits, which I think are just getting worse and worse with every generation. But to actually build capacity to regulate and hold our own feelings, perhaps through these healing circles, I think this gets into some of the building blocks of what true healing is, or perhaps even these ideas about ourselves that can be upgraded. So much of how we see ourselves are from mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. early reflections, some of it projections yeah. from our yeah. early caregivers and from our external world or from, it's incredible how much we get locked into early experiences or being bullied as a child, right, how much right. that really defines our personality, even if we've lived decades beyond yeah, that yeah. and have done so much in our lives to yeah. perhaps counter that experience, maybe even formed by yeah. a reaction to it. But we still get lost so that you can have so much repair on these elemental levels. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, the term attachment theory is something that I've recently started reading about. And it feels like the the thing that you're describing, which is sort of like the the early life relationship, almost Very like much. cast the, set the tone or... I really do feel that. I mean, I, I would say if I, I trained in a very traditional Freudian school, but then over time got much more interested in British object relations theory and Kleinian theory. And the big difference with that is they actually get back into what Freud would say, the pre-verbal state, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, to really talk about how... Infants, you know, what I love about some of these theorists is they really talk about we are born with a capacity to make meaning and to have fantasies. Mm -hmm. And so they would say that the earliest experience a human has is organized around a fantasy of 
maybe gobbling up the world or being gobbled by the world. Right, and you right. see that in, I think, psychedelic work. You can actually see the beauty of the symbolic representations yeah. and the beauty of what Freud would call primary process. But I would say the poetry of life and how we mm -hmm. see the world and how feeling states are cured in our bodies or the narratives or the fairy tales we mm -hmm. live within. Mm -hmm. And there's so much room for imagination, play and reformulation yeah. within that domain. And attachment is a really important idea of early bonding patterns which are established and how much they dominate all of our relationships or relationships to the world or engagement with things of how those of us who didn't have a very receptive environment might have turned away mm -hmm. and had to move inwards mm -hmm. or not really, which has formed who we are. Mm -hmm. But to have a chance to really revisit that and to open into our full potentials, it's such a blossoming and sometimes it's done in a relationship one-on-one -on -one with mm -hmm. a skilled therapist. And sometimes it's actually done in a group. And one of the most elegant ways that I've seen attachment work being done that I'm really fond of is with very careful dosing in a small group where there's a lot of trust when you have everyone going to a place just beyond the margins of self-experientially yeah. in a shared consciousness, perhaps held in music, and then to enter back into one's own body and maybe even be in relationship with the group, perhaps even holding hands right, right. and having some skin contact. It's amazing how even just holding hands mm -hmm. and feeling connected mm -hmm. can have this visceral sense yeah. of deep safety somatically and deep connection. It's almost like opening up to perhaps pathways that didn't get to be mm -hmm. fully embraced mm -hmm. or connected mm -hmm. to. And it's really beautiful in this past-present kind yeah. of soup developmentally. Because, of course, you can't repair and go back to the past. Yeah. But in a certain sense, when you open up those early windows that have been a little bit perhaps undeveloped or have been avoided or not really robustly settled into, you see a whole developmental chain open up. Yeah. So what's coming to mind for me right now is this intuitively makes sense and resonates with me and feels like a powerful approach to healing but it also feels like on the spectrum, more like intuitive, kind of bottom up. And we are living in a world that is increasingly evidence oriented, data oriented, measurement oriented. And this feels like a, on the one hand, perhaps an opportunity for sort of a blending of these two worlds, but in another perspective, a, a collision course for these well, two I frames. I like that you mention it because I do think healing is really an art and a science. Mm -hmm. And you can perhaps hear that I'm very excited about the artistry of mm -hmm. healing and, and that interplay. And also because I think the invitation is for the, each of us as a healer to become an artist, but actually as a patient to actually enter into the art form of life. Mm -hmm. Because I think we all should be artists. And yeah. if we're not artists, that's probably where we're shut down yeah. in some kind of frozen yeah, state. And yeah. sure, we can diagnose it, but you're not living in the full mystery of existence. Right. And I do think we are a little bit stuck in measuring things and mm -hmm. shifting it to the biology instead mm -hmm, of the mm -hmm. subject. But I, what I'm excited about psychedelics is that I think it actually brings us back to the subjective experience, yeah. which is what some of the earlier psychoanalysts and the research there is very, very challenging to do this kind of research. We have case reports. Yeah. But I think when you even look at the MAP study and you see the data, it is so robust when you look at the MDMA psychotherapy studies, how right. you can cure PTSD. 
But it doesn't hold a candle to watching the videotapes right. of these individuals yeah. and these veterans because you can see, wow, they don't have PTSD. But when you look at them, they don't even look like the same human beings. Yeah. You see the person before your eyes looks 20 years younger is suddenly just looking free and alive and not frozen yeah. or distraught or constricted. Mm -hmm. And you can see even in their movement some more fluid. And yeah. I think... This gets into the sort of poetry of life. And I think we need to get better at having different tools to capture this, different ways of mm -hmm. thinking about mm -hmm. what is mental illness. Yeah. We need to start having different diagnostic frameworks or doing away with diagnostics. Yeah. That's what I loved about psychoanalysis is because for people with major depression looked completely different. Yeah. And psychoanalysis would tell us their stories yeah. about what happened to you. Yeah. And I think we need to have a different way of thinking about mental illness and moving into mental flourishing and mental wellness. And Bessel van der Kolk, who's a dear friend and colleague and mentor of mine, he was telling me about, and I would love to see this happen, his desire to see the Rorschach coming back. Mm, because that really is such a beautiful test yeah. to measure the inner subjective experience. And I can see it in the way I work with people because this is what I do. I study people's object relationships. When I first will work with someone, I might say, Tell me about your boyfriend. And it's interesting when you can sometimes see, I can't get a 3D image of the person that mm -hmm. they're describing. It seems like almost a stick figure they're describing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which tells me something about their way of representing that person right, in their right, mind and right. then representing it to me. And it could be just after several sessions if I might say, so what are you doing with your boyfriend this weekend? What's he like? And then the color mm -hmm. and the description that opens yeah. up of, of how they experience him you could capture that. I'm sure I am just so beyond certain. Yeah. And because you see the whole inner world getting restored, the richness of our inner world and the place where we live in our head, really getting it enriched instead of being this. And also we live so much in our own subjective experience. You never have a contrast of what is your world like? Is it a desert or mm -hmm. is it flourishing mm -hmm. with a lot of yeah. beauty yeah. and a lot of a lot of richness. And I think this gives us a chance to restore our inner worlds and yeah. the places where we live. And I think there should be ways of capturing this and thinking about this and and not being limited because we do have this problem of thinking these systems we've created are real right, as right, opposed right. to them just being ways of us trying to have tools or yeah. information, which actually are usually dynamic processes yeah. and not set in stone anyway. The other dichotomy or line of tension that I think is evident in this space is we just talked about the subjective and the objective, right? And 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 that balance and tension and trade-off. But there's also, with the exception of ketamine, psilocybin, LSD, peyote, these are schedule one substances that are felonies if you're if you're caught right. with and the there was just Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill in California that would have decriminalized a lot of naturally occurring plant medicines. And at the same time, we have a lot of energy and effort going into creating clinical or medical pathways for access. And MAPS is yes. expected to have MDMA-assisted therapy, FDA approved in the next 12 or 10 or 12 months or so. And yet the interest, the desire, the curiosity to use these tools, which frankly are readily available, 
for most people, I would argue, like in, in North I mean, America. it seems to be growing more and more and more. There was just a paper, uh, a study, a survey from, I think it's the University of Michigan that does like a, a, a global like survey of, and psychedelic use uh, between the ages of 35 and 50 is like just reached an inflection point and it is going vertical in terms of like the the volume of people. It's more than ev- that's ever been registered by this particular study, which I think has been going back through the 70s. So it's on the rise, right? And so what to do about this situation can be the kind of thing that divides a room amongst psychedelic hopefuls, right? you, you might say, or the psychedelic community. On the one hand, there's there's the 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 line of thinking that getting ahead of the skis or out in front of the data or widespread decriminalization could stymie research, could put people into precarious situations. On the other hand, we're in a mental health crisis. There's a lot of education and support and harm reduction services and and things that are out there to contain space and, and enable safe and effective use. And I, I, this is, I, I don't have an answer for this. I don't have a solution. I don't, I don't even, like my opinion goes back and forth, but I'm curious in the context of using these as therapeutic tools in relation, whether with a therapist or a partner, a friend, a group, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of energy that is, like I just said, forming around creating containers and spaces for these. And and I'm I'm curious from your perspective, is one, how do you see the future unfurling in this dynamic, but not just in a clinical medical context, but the broader ecosystem, if you will, of access and utility and and innovation in, in, in how we use that? Because personally, I feel like there's a lot of innovation happening outside of the halls of academia where the sanctioned research is happening, whether that's with music or dance or spirituality or meditation or I'll stop talking now. And yeah, I kind let of agree with you. Out. I mean, I think it's a really complicated situation mm-hmm. because it's really hard to, I do, do feel like the train has left the station, to be honest yeah. with you. And these medicines are, whether they should be or shouldn't be, is almost a moot point at this mm-hmm. moment. And mm-hmm. I do think that there's so many interesting ways they are being honest and used and sure there are casualties that are coming with it too because these are really powerful medicines and you can get into traumatic situations, difficult situations, people who shouldn't be taking them, medical events. All of that is true too. That being said, there is tremendous innovation and I do feel like a lot of the coolest things I've been seeing are being done in the underground and in different contexts that are not within medical situations. And some of that might be because a lot of the studies that are being done it's really hard to do a research study and there's so many limitations and there's so yeah. many, uh, even to get funding, yeah. oftentimes you yeah. have to, and, and that's wonderful and we need to have that. Yeah. And they're not necessarily asking the questions that, or can even ask the, questions, ask the questions that right. I would right. be interested to yeah. answer. As I'm saying, I'm so interested and, and it sounds like you have an interest in the field, the container, yeah. the impact of touch. Yeah intuition, yeah. what is presence even? Yeah. When I feel like there's so much information shown but to be learned and so much to be investigated. Yeah. And I do think all of that is happening and it's an exciting time and there is sort of a decriminalized movement and yeah. we do need to have access and affordability. 
And we also need sophistication yeah. and we need to have innovation and yeah. we need to go. So it's all of this and it's a really interesting watershed moment to your point. And it's confusing and I don't think we are really sophisticated yet to even have the real menu available in a yeah. clear way of what are the dozens of applications for yeah. psychedelics yeah. and can we get a bit more sophisticated in even naming what the dozens are because yeah. right now I think everyone is listing everything as psychedelic psychotherapy and I feel like well it could just be the pharmacological effect you're doing right, versus right. that where is the therapy or yeah. what is the therapy yeah. or can we even rethink what therapy is right right in just the last few minutes that we have here I'm curious what's your read on the the profession psychiatry's like global perspective of this movement do you feel like you have your finger on the pulse of how your colleagues in psychiatry view this field or understand it or pay paying attention to it or I think things are moving really really rapidly. Yeah. I would say it wasn't that long ago there was a lot of fear mm -hmm. about these medicines and understandably so they're licensed one and often now as in training I would have a lot of psychedelic experience with patients generally coming in overdosing in the emergency room mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. who were psychotic yeah. because they were totally freaking out from having overdosed on PCP yeah. that would be a or crack so we get trained very quickly to really see how harmful these yeah. substances can be that being said i think that that's moved a long way and there's tremendous enthusiasm now for and thirst for knowledge mm -hmm. and particularly i think the younger generation culturally as well as in psychiatry and i think it's actually made psychiatry become a very exciting profession because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it's renewed interest in being able to have a humanistic approach yeah, instead of just being this kind of very desiccated yeah. quasi research profession it's become actually really exciting again and so i see tremendous enthusiasm a lot of medical students reaching out wanting to oh, cool. learn about to yeah. enter into the field and i think psychiatry's become quite a competitive specialty again and i dare say a lot of that has to do with the shift towards psychedelic psychotherapy i think it's really um opening up but of course there's a lot of pushback as well in the field yeah. and not enough research and yeah. turf wars and yeah, yeah. all of those other bits and pieces but i see it as a very positive development very cool well dr gitavide i really appreciate your time and i really love the conversation i thought it was great and i'm curious if you could just mention a few places either online or where can people learn about your work or understand a little bit more about where they can find you online Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here in conversation with you. You can find me at the Center for Natural Intelligence.com or cni.nyc.com and at the Ketamine Training Center. Great. Thank you. This has been fun. Very fun. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to the Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.